0: what are those things we're going to look back on 20 years from now that we're doing today? And, and I think a lot of those for our industry will revolve around guilt development, guilt selection, you know, that we just did not pay enough attention to such a crucial part of our business. And, and so that's another area where I see a ton of, of opportunity, not just in terms of application on the farm, but in a, at a deeper level in research. And, you know, I see a lot of potential research opportunities there to better understand what we need to be doing differently there, what we need to be doing better,
1: it's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry one that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms here you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket swine it podcast is only possible with the support of forward-looking and innovative companies like alanco's prevacent a new perspective visit prevacentpers.us to learn more nutriquest Experts serving producers and delivering breakthrough solutions. Genesis, the first power in genetics. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Zinpro, essential trace minerals, exceptional performance. EveryPig, a simple yet powerful pig health and production management tool. Just All, always one step ahead in swine feeding. Adeseo provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in a high-quality, safe, and sustainable way.
2: Welcome to Swining Podcast. My name is Marcia Gonçalves, your host for today's episode.
1: This episode's sponsor highlight is about Genesis. Genesis is the largest independent producer of high-health-registered purebred swine in the globe. Having over 80% of all registered purebred breeding stock in Canada. The Genesis Genetic Program uses genomic selection strategies focused on productivity, faster growth, efficiency, high yield and meat quality. To know more, go to genesis.com. G-E-N-E-S-U-S.com.
2: Hello everyone, today we have Todd Thurman here in the Swine It podcast show. How are you, Todd?
0: I'm great. How are you, Marcio?
2: Good, good. Thanks for joining here today. And uh, I know you're you're getting a little uh, bored uh, without that many trips, you know, with the COVID right now. And uh, uh, I'm happy to have you today here on the on the show. So thank you so much.
0: Yeah, uh, thanks for having me.
2: So our goal here, we don't have a specific. We I know we have some some talk topics we want to cover, but nothing specifically. Um, something we discussed about the fundamentals of uh, taught in farm. Uh, I think we can start with that. But also, for the folks that don't know you, if you can share you know, your background and, and what we do today.
0: Sure. Yeah, so I grew up in the Texas Panhandle uh, in Amarillo, Texas. Um, and I, I tell people I grew up around agriculture, but not really in agriculture. Mm-hmm. My dad was an environmental chemist, and my mom had a master's degree in social work. Um, and then there's, you go back a little bit further and there's a lot of agriculture in my uh, family tree, but um, mm. it maybe skipped a generation or two. <laughs> um, but uh, because I was so surrounded by agriculture in that, uh, in that community that's so influenced by agriculture, I ended up getting a couple of jobs as a teenager um, working in the, in the ag field and just really very quickly developed a, a passion for it and, and knew really early on that that's what I wanted to do with my career. And so, um, I ended up, uh, after uh, high school, I went to a junior college at Clarendon College and participated in the livestock judging team. I uh, did that for two years, and then I transferred to Texas Tech University, and uh, there, instead of uh, judging livestock, I decided to uh, get a job at the research farm, mm-hmm. um, and that was a really good opportunity for me to get it exposed um, to uh, working on a, on a farm every day, working on a pig farm every day, and then also getting to be part of the the research that was being done by um, Dr. John McGlone and his staff uh, there at the Texas Tech Swine Research Center at the time. So um, it was a great opportunity to get some early exposure to you know some practical uh, aspects of, of pork production and also be able to be a part of some pretty exciting uh, initiatives on the research side. Um, when I graduated from Texas Tech, I, I ended up with a uh, bachelor's degree in animal science with a production emphasis. And went to work for Cargill straight mm-hmm. out of college. Um, worked for, ended up working for Cargill for about 15 years total. Oh. Um, I spent about seven years with Cargill Pork, which was the live production uh, mm-hmm. division of Cargill at the time. Sub- subsequently been sold to JBS. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was there for about seven years and had several different jobs there. But for the most of that time, was responsible for commercial sow production. Mm-hmm. for about half of their sales, So I had about 55,000 sales over three states. Wow.
2: Um,
0: and so that was, that was the majority of that time there. I really just focused on, on business management and production management for that uh, group of uh, farms. Um, and then I trained, stayed with Cargill and moved over to Cargill Animal Nutrition, but kept doing a lot of the same things. I was with the nutrition division, but still very focused on production. Um, and so I got to learn a lot about nutrition and, and applied nutrition and, and really helped kind of uh, make me a more well-rounded, uh, production guy, I guess, but I was mm-hmm. still very much focused on production I helped supporting, um, that internal team on the, on the nutrition side and then also working with some of the key accounts, uh, directly. Um, it also gave me the opportunity to start doing some international work and, uh, ended up transferring uh, for two years to Russia um, and helped uh, a client start up a 25,000-sau fair-to-finish system there in Russia. Uh, So I was there uh, full-time for two years and then back and forth for another year or so. Um, And then when I came back to the U.S., I guess they figured uh, if I would go to Russia, I'd go just about anywhere. So uh, (laughs) they started sending me... uh, to a lot of different places around the world. And I started getting a lot of exposure to to the international scene um, and spent a lot of time in Asia and Latin America and and of course in Europe as well. So um, ended up leaving Cargill, uh, spent three years with uh, Genesis Genetics, um, was focused about 50% North America, 50% Asia. Um, And a big part of that was uh, key accounts in the U.S. and in China and then also uh, business development in the Philippines. So, um, did that for about three years, business development role, uh, along with a little bit of technical support as well. And then about three years ago, in fact, almost exactly three years ago, Mm -hmm. I uh, started uh, uh, Swine Tech's Consulting Services. I've been uh, uh, doing that for, I think, July 1st was our uh, third anniversary, so I'm sure we we beat some statistics there, but, uh, it's uh it's been a great opportunity to really build on kind of my background. And so we're about 45% training about 45% consulting. And then another 10% is what we call uh Swine Tech's insights, which is really working with industry participants and, and allied industry to kind of help, uh, you know, uncover opportunities, look at expansion opportunities, M and a, um, you know, really, uh, people that might have a product that's uh, got some application in, say, the poultry industry, and they want to uh, see what those applications might look like in the swine industry, uh, some of those types of things. So it's a relatively small part of my business, maybe 10%, but it's probably the most visible part of my business. So, um, that's, uh, it's 10% of my business, but it's most likely where, uh, where you've seen me, if you've seen me out and about, because you know, that's where we do our, our reaching out through social media and speaking engagements and things of that nature. Right.
2: No, that makes so sense, and yeah, social media is something that uh, I know you are very active there. Uh, myself as well, and and uh, and I wish more folks would get uh, involved. I I think people. I don't know. What do you think? I think people get I uh, I don't know. Get scared of something or of commenting or discussing topics. What do you think?
0: Yeah, you know, I I think it's uh, what one of the things I learned early on was for every person that interacts or engages. You on social media. There's probably a hundred that are that are watching and listening and and taking in you know the discussion, but aren't actively participating. So you know I'd sure like to see more participation, but um, yeah, I think you got to keep in mind that your your audience is probably much bigger than what you what you think it is. I know I've been surprised. I've actually been recognized in a couple of airports and things like that. That's uh, funny. And and you just you know you kind of just put things out and it goes out into the ether and. Uh, you kind of wonder who's even listening, but uh, you know there's a there's a lot more people listening uh, uh, than, than what you think. So uh, that's encouraging, I think, in terms of getting a message out.
2: Yeah, because I think in the beginning, if you go back, I don't know, 5, 10 years or more, people look at social media as, ah, whatever, it's a waste of time, right? I think today it's a good way for people in the industry to cause not only impact within the industry, but also, of course, outside just from overall consumer perception, I think.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think it's a great tool. And, you know, we certainly try to do uh, what we can, but uh, we're we're not, we're not professionals by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, um, it's definitely a, a great way to, to communicate, like you said, within the industry and then actually even outside the industry and be able to, you know, increase awareness of what we do and how we do it. I think it is important for us to be engaged in that that dialogue, even though it's not always easy and sometimes you know, very frustrating and you feel like you're being attacked from all sides, but I think uh, uh, engaging in that discussion is important.
2: Super cool. So so what are your thoughts on uh, farms in general? I think you, you probably focus more on south farms, right? So the focus on the fundamentals.
0: Yeah, so we're we're probably uh, a little heavier, really, he- heavier focus on south farms. We also spend quite a bit of time on the reading the finish piece as well. Uh, So I'd say probably 65, 35 maybe um, in favor of the the South side. Um, But, you know, I I really try to encourage people to talk about fundamentals and focus on those fundamentals. And, And I think it's one of the most challenging and important things that a consultant does is get people focused on the right things that are the most important and sometimes more importantly to keep them from focusing on the wrong things, you know. Um, And again, I shouldn't really say wrong thing. This is not necessarily the wrong things to be focused on. It's just, you know, you're focusing on lesser value things and and ignoring higher value things. Um, And most often, you know, those are the the basics and the fundamentals. And so, you know, everybody wants that secret sauce or that uh, silver bullet to solve their problems and and that little tip or trick. and you know, the, the unfortunate uh, news is, is I disappoint people and tell them um, that there's not a, you know, a special tip or trick. Uh, it's not a secret. Um, it's, it's implementing uh, effectively and consistently those fundamentals every day. You know, so those are the, that's the difference between the the bad farms and the good farms and the good farms and the great farms is, is their implementation of those fundamentals. And so it's, Most of the time people want me to teach them something new, Mm -hmm. but we're very focused on getting results. When I started my consulting business, I wanted, I did not want to be a peddler of information, right? I didn't want to be the kind of guy that says, okay, well, here's the right answer. And then whatever you do with that, you know, it's up to you, right? That not that there's anything wrong with that, but that just doesn't appeal to me. I want to be part of uh, making a difference on those farms and actually seeing results, and so that's where it becomes much more challenging in my view, because you have to take that information and then transform that information and in results into results on farms. And that's where it gets a lot more complicated. So just giving the right answer is, is is not enough. It's it's how do we take that information and get it implemented on the farms.
2: Right. So really understanding the yeah, understanding the problem before coming up with a solution. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. That makes total sense of course every farm is different but in general based on your experience when you think about sow farms what are the say top three things there on the fundamentals that you've seen the biggest roi or lowest uh, hanging fruit there
0: the you know the most by far the most common thing that i see is issues around sow body condition okay. um, and primarily in lactation feeding on cells. Uh, you know, that's just where the hang-up is. It's not necessarily that the other phases are, are not important they certainly are but the most common issue that I see if you kind of break it down into the root causes is, is lactation feeding in sows and so that's the I would say on upwards of 80% of my initial farm visits You know, that's at least kind of yeah, makes so the cut in terms of those top issues um, Certainly see those as, as, a, as a huge opportunity and it's not even close really um, but a couple of others that really come to mind is is guilt development and guilt selection. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really just think as an overall industry, you know, if you, I'm always trying to think, what, what are those things we're going to look back on 20 years from now that we're doing today and think, wow, that was crazy, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think a lot of those for our industry will revolve around guilt development, guilt selection, you know, that we just did not pay enough attention to such a crucial part of our business and and so that's another area where i see you know a, a ton of of opportunity not just in terms of application on the farm but you know in in, in a, at a deeper level in research and and you know i see a lot of potential research opportunities there to better understand you know what what we need to be doing differently there what we need to be doing better and then the last thing that just pops into my head i guess is is uh, that early pig care you know what do you do in that first you know eight hours of life because it just has such a big impact on, on everything else. And and I I like to tell people, I have some, some areas that I've identified that I call inflection points that are just, you know, they're not necessarily more important than any others except for the fact that when you do them right, they have kind of a domino effect and and make everything else a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so those are definitely three that, that are on that list that are directly related to sow production and, and man, you put those three together, and I would say it's the percentage of the work that I do um, is it's pretty high. I, I end up talking about those three things a lot.
2: <laughs> yes, I'm, and I'd say that the first one you mentioned Matt, matches my bias as well. My yeah, my experience visiting farms is that at least more than half of them probably overweight, but the the sound farm managers say nah, they're they're fine right well it's it's because you're there every day right that's the first thing i think and the other comment is you know so so i went to grad school was a swan nutritionist and then after that working in and, and you talk about all these nutrient levels and all those things right but then back to what you said the the whole body condition it's the single most important thing in the south side of things when it comes to nutrition and for that matter, it's it's amazing. It's in the and the other uh, comment I have on that one is that is one of the few areas in pig production that you can save money and improve performance, right? right. Otherwise, it's it's super hard to find that that match.
0: No, I I think that's right, and it's uh it's really about finding a balance, and that's that's where the challenge lies. It's it's very hard to give someone a prescription for. You know this is what you know I always tell people people want to tell me uh, they want me to come in and and teach them what to feed their cells uh, and, mm-hmm. and I tell them I can't. Yeah. I have to teach you how to feed cells right not mm-hmm. what to feed them you know and, and it's not that complicated, but it is something that requires you know some some effort on the part of the of the farm staff uh, to you know not just say okay well this is this cell needs x amount of feed per day um you know i'm gonna have to teach you to the thought processes that right. you have to go through to try to uh, make sure that we're meeting that cell's needs in a, in an efficient way
2: yes and you know one thing on this arena that I, that i find interesting is that i think sal even my mom that has never seen a pig before uh, can say well she looks thin right but a fat sow it's not that easy for someone that doesn't have a whole lot of experience. So I think that's part of the problem too.
0: No, I, I agree with that. And, and certainly that's an issue almost everywhere that I go, but it's a, it's a really big issue in Asia. Um, oh. I mean, it's almost every farm I go to the sows are overconditioned, and, and it's just this, this very old, very ingrained mentality of we've got to get these cells really fat coming into the fairing house because we know they're not going to eat very good. Yeah. We know they're going to lose a lot of weight. Right. And we still want them looking good when they come out. And, you know, just that concept of trying to help them understand it's not necessarily, you know, her condition when she comes out, it's how much did she lose while she was in there. Um, yes. And so, you know, beating that mentality in, in Asia is a monumental undertaking. Um, and something that, you know, I had to spend an inordinate amount of time talking about to, but it's just so important. It's not something I can skip, right? It's, yes. not, it's not something I can just say, wow, there's a lot of resistance there. We'll just move on to something else. It's, it's that important. It has to be addressed. And so you have to do the hard work about uh, getting those
2: changes made. Right. That idea of, hey, I'll give a little more, I'll get to fair with a little more back fat so they can burn. It's not a good strategy.
0: Yeah, and well and it and it does make some, you know, sort of intuitive sense if, if right. you're if you're talking about body condition, but when you look at the 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 biology and start to break it down, it really doesn't doesn't make sense. And and really actually you're contributing to the problem. And, you know, when I tell people even today, when I tell clients and, and new clients in China, I'd rather yourselves be a little thin than a little heavy, you know, that's just a really hard concept for them to to grasp, you know. I don't want them to be thin or heavy. I want it to be just right. But just, yeah. you know, if I had to choose, I'd sure rather go on the other side because, you know, it's a lot easier to get that uh, that condition back on that cell when we get her out of the faring house than it is to deal with the issues that come along with an overconditioned cell in the fairing house.
2: Right, and she's probably gonna win. Well, we have good data now showing that that you know over several parities, just retention rate and those kind of things too. Uh, you know, it's sure. gonna be better for them super cool um when you think about i know you you and i before uh, the podcast we talked about high leverage activities on farms Uh, are these the same ones that you just described or something else
0: yeah so for the south farm those uh, i have really six that i that i focus on um, heavily and and several of those those three that i've already mentioned Are definitely on there. Uh, Gilt selection, day one pig care, um, lactation, sow feeding. Um, uh, Another one is heat detection. That's one that uh, you don't hear a lot of people talking about these days. And I think everybody thinks that we probably have some technology at some point where we don't have to worry about that anymore. But it's maybe not the most exciting topic, um, Mm -hmm. but it's one that I still see a big opportunity in. Um, And so I hear a lot of talk about people. People come in and want me to talk about breeding techniques and, and you know, what we need to do there. And I, I always tell them, if you do a good job of heat detection, uh, a lot of that other stuff takes care of itself. So mm-hmm. um, it's just still, it's still one of those persistent problems that I see in a lot of uh, places around the world. Um, and then the other two that, you know, aren't really South Farm related would be uh, those first seven to ten days post-ween. Um, you know, I think, you know, when it comes to, You know, the wean to finish uh, segment, you know, if we get that right, everything else gets a lot easier. And if we get that wrong, it's almost like a hole that you can't quite ever dig out of. Um, And so we spend a lot of time talking about how to get those pigs on feed, um, how to identify, you know, those pigs that are that are falling back quickly so that we can get get in there and intervene. Uh, Because if we, we wait too long, there's there's nothing you can do to get in there and get that. Uh, get that back and so we spent a lot of time focusing on that and then on the extreme the other end the last one of the six would be uh, marketing of of market hogs yeah. you know, and making sure that we don't give away a lot of the advantages we worked so hard to gain you know during that last you know six months or whatever it is uh, we see that a lot uh, we, we send them to market and we we fail to capitalize on that so we don't get the right pigs to the right market at the right time and and when we do that, we're we're uh, we're not uh, maximizing our revenue, and that's really unfortunate. When you spent all that time and put all that yeah. effort, and then and then you know it's just kind of a lack of focus. Uh, you let some of that uh, potential revenue slip through the cracks, and you know, we sure we don't want that to happen.
2: Yes, and I don't know what you you saw in Asia, but I know in South America, um, the the whole idea of uh, marketing strategies and and different cuts it's not as common as i see here in the west there is but it's not as common uh what do you see about that in in asia
0: yeah i mean one of the bigger challenges that we deal with in asia is there's still a lot of those pigs that are marketed through a a broker system uh, where you know you basically have a you know still have a guy that comes in and and selects which pigs he wants to buy and and you know obviously that you know, as part of the the biosecurity concern is, mm-hmm. is having these guys you know coming from farm to farm is a, just a nightmare scenario from a biosecurity standpoint um but it also uh you know kind of obscures the the need to to have those animals in the right place at the right time and and get them ready and so sometimes you have those animals ready and and they can't take them because you know they just have a certain quota that they need and so um you know that gets to be a challenge because it's really out of the control of the producer in some cases, um, and so that's something we have to we have to focus on and I, that's changing, and I think that's changing faster uh, because of of the focus on biosecurity, um, the focus on you know kind of modernizing those supply chains and so I see that over the next five years as a big opportunity for Asian because in the past they've not thought about that at all because it was largely out of their control, but that is you know, as things modernize and and things happen quickly, um, that's going to become very important. And so that's an area where there's not a lot of expertise, and and there's going to be some some real needs there over the next next uh, couple of years, uh, to for you know them to you know for the first time in some cases focusing on on how to maximize that. Um, the other issue that you deal with in in Asia is that uh, a lot of evaluation is still subjective. You know, so you have you know basically one guy's opinion on Mm -hmm. you. So you hear about body shape, you know, and I'm I'm always frustrated by that because I don't know what body shape means. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Your idea of body shape and my idea of body shape are two different things. And so we really need to get, you know, to more of a, of a, you know, an objective measurement to define, you know, what they're looking for. So that communication between the processors and the farmers is, is not good at all. Um, We always, we're maybe a little bit frustrated with even in the West where there's some disconnects there between the messages that the packer is sending the, the producer, but um, it's nothing compared to Asia where there's basically just almost no communication at all. Um, and so as that changes, that's another big opportunity.
2: Wow. What um, what do you see um, from a overall system design standpoint that I know you work, uh, a lot with it um what are the biggest struggles there or or opportunities
0: yeah so i think as uh you know in the developing markets that are that i work in uh primarily in asia um, a big part of the problem is they're growing so quickly right mm. um, and so everything is is sort of compressed and it just happens really fast and so that can be good and it can be bad if uh, things are going to happen quickly either way um, so if you're doing a good job and you're you're thinking through um, you know your system design uh, then that can be a, that can be an okay thing but when you're uh, you know I always tell I always tell people in, in, in Asia in general in China specifically it's you know let's build it and then figure it out later right um, mm-hmm. and so they're really good at getting things done in terms of taking action but always not not always so good about uh, planning ahead and so that's one of the things that I really try to preach to to the larger integrators um, that i work with in asia is it really pays to think through that ahead of time you know and then execute a, a well a well-planned strategy uh, you're gonna you're gonna have a lot fewer regrets when you get finished and so um, it's really about trying to create con- some consistency and let's think about how to grow this system in a way that it's going to be easier to manage um, and i know you know when i've in the past have brought uh, some of my Asian clients back to the U S and that's one of the things I always try to get uh, my clients here in the U S that are talking to them, giving them advice to reinforce, Mm -hmm. you know, if you have everything that's sort of set up and you've got most of your farms are the same size and roughly the same design and um, you know, your pig flow is, is sort of, you know, makes sense uh, it becomes much easier to manage as opposed to a hodgepodge of all different size farms and, and different technology and, and all those kind of things. So, uh, the more consistent we can be in that, I think that's going to be a huge, huge advantage for those guys.
2: Interesting. And, and, you know, something that comes to mind there Todd is that uh, maybe a lot of folks in the U S don't realize, but I think uh, it's when I came to the U S first, I, I really noticed that, uh, culturally, I think the U S is pretty good in, uh, Planning ahead Uh, and I could realize that even in small settings like not even pig related sometimes uh, just being you know what we're gonna do and blah blah blah. which I think for most people in the US is like well that's just the way it is right but even coming from Brazil to the US that was a very interesting thing Uh, and of course might be talking about a little bit of an extreme there from a production standpoint when you think about uh, that uh, in Asia but it's something that uh caught my attention uh, culturally speaking sure how about the labor and the future of laboring farms what do you have in mind there on this topic Todd
0: yeah so I I spend a, a lot of time focused on that um, and and I, I spend a lot of time thinking about and talking about the differences in different systems because I've had the opportunity to work in a lot of different places I spent Quite a bit of time in Brazil, like obviously spent some time in in Russia and Eastern Europe and then in Asia. And then, of course, obviously here in North America. And so I I spend a lot of time talking about those contrasts and and the the differences. But the one area that is consistent everywhere I've been is labor challenges. Um, That that's, you know, always, you know, I think about making a list of those things that keep you up at night if you're managing a big business. You know, those are the things that that are really concern people. So, finding and keeping uh, good, qualified, uh, skilled labor is a is a huge challenge for for virtually everyone. Now, in different countries, in different situations, it might look you know the details might look a little different, but as an overarching uh, concern, you know, labor in general is is one that everyone has in common. Uh, everyone I talk to is concerned about that. And it's extremely important, right? I, you know, again, the other thing, since I get to see a lot of farms, people ask me, you know, what are the differences between the good farms and the and the not so good farms? Um, mm-hmm. And I tell them, you know, that it's, you know, a focus on fundamentals like we've talked about, but mm-hmm. that it, it really gets down to people because I've seen, you know, good facilities are great, right? But I've seen some really good farms and some pretty average facilities, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and, and so there's a lot of, pieces there that are that are nice to have but the one difference that i've seen i've never seen a high producing farm that didn't have really good people Mm -hmm. Um, and so you know that's the one that that, the 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 common thread through all of those good farms is is good people And so that's easy to say and and really hard to do um but i think that's actually one of those things that's actually getting harder it's it's becoming a bigger challenge day to day um, and so finding the right people um, and, and getting them interested and engaged in agriculture to want to do this kind of work um, is, is a big challenge. So uh, I really think it, to me, it comes back to trying to find a a sort of a craftsman is really what you're looking for. You know, um, you know, we talk about the technology and stuff like that, these technological advances on these farms and be able to operate these uh, systems and these tools that we have available for uh, to us from a technological standpoint, but all those old husbandry skills are still important, right? So um, it's the combination of those two things that's hard to find, um, and I think that's the real challenge: is somebody that can be, you know, capable enough and technologically savvy enough to be able to incorporate those tools that are becoming increasingly available to us effectively, but also still be able to 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 handle the art side of what we do, um, and that sometimes you just have a feeling, and sometimes you know it's about observation skills and, and just being able to notice things that other people don't notice. Um, and so, you know, that's that really is a, is a lot of problems and not a lot of answers. Um, <laughs> but I think the answers really come down to focusing on on those skills and, but more importantly, those characteristics. I think as we ch- we try to find the right people to work on these farms. We need to be less concerned about what experience they have in the industry and what technical skills they have, and be more concerned with getting the people with the right characteristics. People that are patient, people that have attention to detail, people that enjoy working with animals, you know, those kind of things. You give me those type of people and I can teach them everything they need to know to be successful from a technical standpoint. Um, and so I think, you know, more of a focus on on those characteristics that are common in, in successful. Uh, workers on these farms i think identifying those and and being able to uh, uh, recruit people that exhibit those characteristics i think is going to be a really important part of the strategy as we move forward
2: sense of urgency is something that i think you know you mentioned our early peak care boy you know if you don't have sense of urgency it's a tough one to learn something it's
0: about things. really about uh, priorities you know you know I, I see this all the time, just coaching that I give people I come in and you know they're working on uh, on on uh, some you know minor issue and there's a sow in the fairing house standing there you know banging on her feet or wants to eat you know uh, mm-hmm. you know you've got to be able to recognize um, and make those decisions and those are those are decision making skills you know being able to determine you know what's more important than you know between these two activities, what should I be, what should I be focusing on and what can wait, you know, for an hour or two, or maybe that can be put off till the next day. Um, a sense of priorities is, is really important. And so I really focus on coaching people on, on identifying the, the high priorities and make sure you, you get that stuff done. And then some of that other stuff can wait.
2: Very good. And then trying to retain the people too, right? Um, it's a, that's a, that's also a challenge one comment I have in um uh, in my experience, I remember two things right One is I remember some farms when I was back in Brazil where the you know the shower on the when you' getting to the farm was cold. it's like okay, and you want your folks your your team to to shower when they get into the farm in the winter time here with stuff. Uh, and now the other one was was here in the West, where I went to a farm, extremely high-perform farming system, and um, I got my attention. Uh, the it, it's going to be it's going to be uh, silly, right? But the, uh, the shampoo. So the shampoo. That's detail, I think. But it's it means hey, this system is willing to spend I don't know what dollar more on this shampoo just i don't know just make you feel good when you're getting the farm getting out of the farm just i think details like that 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 compound on your retention rate is my is my feeling
0: no i i agree and and i know in china it's becoming a a huge issue you know we think of china as being this huge population and there's plenty of people but we're also in in a massive migration and so the where these farms are located, these people are moving to the cities, and so there's fewer and fewer people. It's a, it's kind of crazy that it's a country of one and a half billion people, and we have major shortages of qualified labor in a lot of these locations where we have these farms. and And so I'm coaching, you know, some of these farm owners that you're competing now with jobs in the city, right? Mm-hmm. You're going after some of those same people. So it's not about you know, tapping into a labor force that doesn't have many other uh, opportunities, you need to think about you're competing with college graduates that have real opportunities, um, you know, in the city to do a desk job, you know. And so it's really important that you, you find the right people, identify those people, recruit them, get them into your system. And then like you mentioned, sometimes it's just such simple things like that just really basic things that show that you, you know, you care about your employees and you're trying to create uh, an environment that's as as friendly as possible to those employees. You know, this is still tough work. It's, it's, it's hard. It's stinky. It's sometimes hot and uh, you know, it's still physical labor. And so, you know, we need to do whatever we can to, you know, improve that working environment for those employees. and, And, you know, like you said, it's sometimes really simple things and, and, And it just amazes me in China. I I keep meeting with these farm owners that appear to be running a prison, (laughs) right. You know, in terms of the, the environment that they're having their employees endure. And in China it's even more important because they actually live there on the farm, you know, so they're on the farm for months at a time. So that, that work environment extends. It's not just their work environment. That's their, you know, their home environment. too, basically. And so, you know, in those environments for sure, you know, we've got to take an ex- extra step if we want to find the right people and want to, more importantly, keep those people around. We have to be willing to, to create an environment that's as comfortable as possible for them. Um, so those seem like such simple things, but, and they really are, but um, you know, it's, it's, it's really important that we don't lose
2: sight of those things. Very good. Um, how about uh, with the recent situation as far as the packing plants and the supply chain what are your thoughts there from um, efficiency and or resilience standpoint
0: yeah i think i think first of all i think the the industry should be commended for the response i mean it was it was and continues to be a very painful experience for a lot of people um and so certainly want to recognize that um, that that not only was it was a really difficult time for everyone involved, um, that it continues to be a difficult time. You know, things have gotten better, but we're we're not out of the woods yet, and yeah. you know, we've still got some real structural issues to deal with. Um, with that said, I've been very impressed with the way the industry has responded. Um, I, I think uh, I don't think anybody expected that we would be able to do as good a job as we had have as an industry to slow these pigs down and create slack in our systems. It's remarkable what our nutritionists and, and our managers on the farm have been able to do in terms of you know creating slack in a system that just doesn't have a lot of natural slack in it at all. Yeah. Um, and so that's been very impressive and, and quite frankly, they've done a much better job than I thought was possible. Um, so you know that's the industrys to be commended for that. And on the on the processing side, you know uh, the reality is they've gotten back you know closer to full capacity you know much quicker than I anticipated uh, than I honestly thought was possible so um, you know it wasn't perfect and, and certainly looking back on it probably we would do some things differently but I think it's important for for people to understand that the industry really rose to the occasion uh, both on the on the farm side and on the processing side um, and so you know that doesn't mean that we can't have a discussion. we got to have a discussion about you know how do we improve the resiliency of these supply chains. Um, but I think we need to do that in the context of understanding that that this industry really did rise to the occasion and and pulled off something that I don't think anybody inside or outside of the industry really thought was possible. Um, right. And so that's you know that's definitely an encouraging encouraging thing. And then the other thing I would like to encourage people to think about is, Is it's very natural for us to have this conversation around how do we add some resiliency to the system. But there is a huge amount of value in that efficiency, you know. And so I want to make sure that we don't just throw away that efficiency. Um, You know, it's really easy right now to look at it and say, oh, well, you know, uh, when something like COVID 19 happens, the system falls apart. And so we need to do something different. Um, And and that's natural and normal. And I think it's a conversation that absolutely needs to be had, but it needs to be had in the context of, you know, the other 99 years where we didn't have COVID-19, that system worked pretty darn good um, and, and was created a lot of efficiency. And just from an industry standpoint, we need to try to preserve as much of that efficiency as possible while introducing some more resiliency. And then even as we step back in a broader context, just economically speaking, I think, you know, our industry can kind of serve as a, as a microcosm for, for a bigger picture discussion around, um, you know, how do we balance that efficiency and resiliency. Um, and, and I just want to make sure that we don't, that we keep everything in, in context um, and make sure that we understand that, that, that efficiency has a, significant amount of value and so let's try to preserve as much of that efficiency as possible in our pursuit to improve resiliency very good
2: do, do you have any ideas at all on how to, to 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 bring some resiliency to this situation or or something that you just want to challenge that the industry to think about well
0: i, I you know i think there, there's a couple of things i think uh first we have to decide you know the 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 general idea here is that as efficiency improves, resiliency goes down and vice versa. And so they're negatively correlated. And I think in general, that's true. Um, and so from that perspective, if, if we, you know, if we you know, put ourselves in that paradigm, um, then we have to say, okay, well, how much efficiency are we willing to give up in exchange for how much resiliency? So I think some of the combination, the conversation is going to be finding the right balance there. And so I think there's some areas where you know we do need to be willing to uh, to give up a certain amount of efficiency in exchange for some resiliency. One example of that, you know, just to kind of look at uh, an international global trade component of that is we found out through the ASF issues that you know we were very reliant on some ingredients coming Mm in the China. You know, so I know these feed companies as as things got. Uh, bad in china a lot of these uh producers went to their feed suppliers in the u.s and said hey we don't want anything that's coming out of china and and the answer very quickly was okay well there's for Mm -hmm. most of this stuff we can do that but there's some of these ingredients we can't do that on you know and so that's a problem and and so yeah i'm not necessarily saying that none of it needs to come from china but certainly we don't need to be reliant on any any international market for you know that high a percentage of of our needs of a of a core uh ingredient an ingredient that you know is, is is unavoidable you know um and so certainly we need to rethink that and if we have to give up some efficiency in order to provide you know to repatriate some of that production or at least to provide some uh, some you know to spread out that risk among you know some more uh Varied some, a set of suppliers, and I think that's definitely a wise investment, even if it does mean a reduction in a, in a little bit of efficiency. but my bigger concern is to try to find those innovations that break the paradigm you know those innovations where we can preserve the efficiency and still yeah. you know recapture uh, some some resiliency so you know those are obviously those uh, those areas where everybody wants to to try to find those and I think on the processing side, I think uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning and, you know, some of that next wave of automation um, that can really reduce our dependency on human labor, um, but at the same time, be able to adjust for those realities of managing a biological product, right? And that, you know, car doors are exactly the same size, you know, and and show up in the exact same place every time, and, and pork loins aren't necessarily that... Uh, consistent, you know, and so I think you know implementing these new technologies and taking that automation to to the next level, I think you know frees us up to to have a lot less dependence on on human labor. Uh, you know, even before COVID nineteen on the processing side, that was our biggest obstacle to you know expanding. You know, why can't you do more on the processing side? It's labor, um, and and really, arguably, the COVID nineteen situation was really just labor situation as well Um, and so it's it's less intense less urgent on the farm side but certainly on the processing side some of those technologies that can uh, reduce our dependence on on human labor or reduce our dependence on on physical labor and shift some of that you know physical uh, stress uh, you know onto the machines and then let the people manage the machines I think um, is is an opportunity to to really increase the resiliency in our systems without having to give away any inefficiency and perhaps even gaining inefficiency. So, uh, obviously, any area in today's environment, as we think about an area that could, uh, in a technology or a strategy or uh, uh, something that we could implement that would improve resiliency and at the same time preserve or even improve efficiency, would be a, a home run for everybody. So, you know, I know I'm involved in a lot of. Uh, you know, thinking through uh, some of those processes and, and, and getting that technology implemented. Um, and that's something I'm really focused on. And I, and I hope the industry uh, follows that lead and, and uh, really focuses on that as a, as a solution there that doesn't have to compromise.
2: Very good. Any thoughts on the trade side of things and, and exports? Uh, what do you have in mind there?
0: Yeah. I, I, you know, I'm a little concerned. I, 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 uh, I'm a free trader and, uh, you know, I'm a very big proponent of, of free trade policies. And, um, and that's not a very, uh, re, right now, that's not a very popular position. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of, and understandably so a lot of interest in, in you know, kind of reshoring, uh, production and, and less dependence on, on global supply chains and, Uh, And certainly, like I said before, I mentioned an example before of of somewhere where that was strategic and and we need to be careful with that. But, um, you know, I I think we need to be more targeted uh, about those those production, uh, those areas where we decide to to reshore some of those capabilities or repatriate them or diversify uh, to other suppliers. Um, but then, in a, in, a, in a bigger picture, I want to pr- try to preserve uh, a lot of this global trade infrastructure that's been built over the last ten or fifteen years, and, and the reason is very simple: is that I think that that humanity has benefited greatly from that. Um, and so, uh, you know, I know our industry on the on the pork side, uh, we're very we've become very dependent on exports, and and we've become dependent on exports. For two main reasons: one, we've gotten a lot better at raising pigs, mm-hmm. um, and and so we produce a lot more pigs than we need. Um, but the the second issue is there's other uh, places that need pork, and we are the most efficient way to produce it. Um, and so if I look at, you know, I obviously spend a lot of time in China. Uh, we can produce pork in the U.S. right now, ship it to China a lot cheaper than they can produce it themselves. Um, and so, you know, finding that balance and trying to create those trade opportunities that are mutually beneficial, uh, I think is really important. And I'm just, I, I'm concerned that in the, the waves of nationalism and, and kind of anti-globalism, that, that we don't, again, give away a lot of the efficiencies that those global supply chains have, have provided us, um, and that we're just a little more uh, nuanced and a little more careful as we evaluate those. And to, to make those decisions thoughtfully and not, uh, you know, reactionally, um, and who really just think through the the implications of those and, and and try to preserve as much of that as we can, while improving that resiliency and, and, and providing that security that that governments around the world need, you know, to feel uh, secure about their food supply.
2: No, very interesting comments there, Todd. Um, anything else? on any of these topics before we go to the three questions that I ask every guest on the, on the podcast? Uh, you no,
0: know, I, I think I would just, you know, mention that, uh, you know, as we uh, sort through kind of the aftermath of, of, of COVID-19 and start to think about what the next normal is going to look like. Um, I just, I hope that, that we can do that thoughtfully um, and, and not, like I said before, not just be reactionary. And so I think we need to definitely take these lessons that we've learned uh, Mm -hmm. to heart, um, but also not uh, dismiss the fact that that our systems have served us quite well, actually, over the past uh, 10 years. And make sure that we maintain the the context that as difficult as this has been, we've met our needs, right? The system has worked. It's not been pretty, and it's not been without stress, and it's not been without – uh, sacrifice that we've been able to to achieve this, um, but our systems worked in a very uh, unpredictable un you know it gets overused now the term unprecedented but you know the systems did work um, and and so you know let's not completely throw away the existing system as we try to think about what can we do better so I, I certainly want us to have that conversation as an industry and then in broader terms as. It's, it's, as countries and, and economies and, and really, you know, across the board, uh, globally, we're going to have this discussion. I just hope we do that in a way that, that recognizes that um, I don't think it makes much sense to completely throw away all that we have built over the last, you know, 10 or 15 years and all the progress that we've made. And so um, those are just some things that I you just want to encourage people to keep in mind as we as we sort through what this new normal is going to be and, and how we're going to respond to these uh, Uh, unprecedented times that we're dealing with
2: absolutely yeah no i definitely would agree with that it is time to
1: our famous three isn't it time your PERS protocol evolved Ilanco's prevacent PERS is safe and effective offering at least 26 weeks of immunity duration against the respiratory form of PERS. As the first and only on-market USDA-licensed vaccine containing a Contemporary Lineage 1 field stream, Prevacent is a contemporary solution. Connect with your veterinarian or an Elan Co representative to understand how Prevacent can fit your operation. Visit PrevacentPRRS.us to learn more. Prevacent, it's time for a new perspective. For knowledge and news from the global swine industry, access our partner, thepigsite.com. What's your favorite pig-related
2: uh, book?
0: Oh, the, probably the one I use the most is, uh, and you've probably heard this one before, but the Gestating and Lactating Cell, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Dr. Farmer's book. Um, I find it to be very timely. I've I probably used it as a reference. Uh, more than any other over the last year or so that I've had it. So it's a, it's a great resource. And there's several others, but that one really comes to mind.
2: Very cool. Yeah, that's a very good book. How about any uh, book in general not related to pigs that, that have uh, changed uh, your life or, or the way you think?
0: Um, I'd be a little unconventional. Um, I think I would go with, uh, it's actually a history book. Um, and, uh, it's by, uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin. Um, and it's about, uh, Abraham Lincoln. It's called the team of rivals. And it's mm-hmm. a, it's a really thick, intimidating book. Um, but you know, I would say after reading it several times, mm-hmm. looking back on it, it's a history book. It's actually a leadership book disguised as a history book. And it, and it really is, uh, it's a sort of a biography of, of, Lincoln and in a history of his uh, presidency, early life and presidency. And and obviously that was a formative time in in American history, but the discussion, you know, in the title team of rivals, it's really how he uh, took a group of people with a very diverse set of opinions and he surrounded himself not with yes men uh, Mm -hmm. or with people that were just going to encourage him, but people that were going to challenge him. And so I just think there's a ton of lessons in that experience for, you know, business leaders, politicians, you know, basically anybody that's in any sort of leadership position, you know, to kind of value those, those uh, opinions that might contradict with your own. And, you know, I know, I've learned a lot more from people that disagree with me than I have from people that agree with me. And, and that mentality, I think, is is really borne out in, in that book. And so it's, it's big, it's thick, it's really intimidating looking. Um, but I really do think it's, it's worth the read. I've I've read it probably two or three times, and and get something different out of it every time.
2: Very cool. No, I, I was not familiar with that book. That's that's good to know. And then, lastly, uh, Todd, what do you think sets uh, par successful swan professionals from those uh, that are not?
0: Well, we've talked about it a little bit before, and and I think it's it's that relentless focus mm-hmm. on the fundamentals.
2: Mm-hmm. You know, as
0: I think about. You know, what are the differences between the good farms and the, and the bad farms and the, and the great farms and the good farms? And the difference really is that, that focus and execution on the fundamentals. Uh, those, are, those are the things that are the most common differences I see. Or the most common similarities between those good farms is that they, they execute consistently on those fundamentals. And that's what they're focused on. They don't get distracted by, you know, minor details that don't matter. Um, and so I think that's, you know, to me in my observation in my experience, that's been the, the, the biggest difference. And it, it, so, you know, the good news there is there's no secret, you know, um, you know, sure. You, you know, it's always great to learn new things and, and refine what you know and, and all those kind of things. Um, but really from a practical standpoint, you know, and that's where I try to, to operate is, is practically, you know, getting results on farms. It's really about taking the stuff you already know and implementing it every day. You know, you go to to businesses all the time that you don't really know much about a restaurant, but you think, oh, they can do that better, right? Chances are, it's not that they don't know that that's an opportunity. It's just that they fail to execute. For whatever reason, they fail to execute. So um, I think that same same thing applies to farms, and, and, you know, that's where I really try to, that's where I think I can get the most impact um, is by helping people uh, focus and execute consistently every day on those fundamentals and it just has to be done every single day you can't do it you know every once in a while you can't do it when it's convenient you have to do it every single day and just be relentless about it and that's that's the key to success in my opinion
2: very cool yeah i love it yeah it makes total sense and match some my bias as well as as you know when i observed uh, some of the most um productive herds. so very good Todd really appreciate your uh, time and uh, we'll be in touch.
0: Yep, thanks a lot, I appreciate it. It was uh, great joining.
2: Imagine if with a few key concepts, you could have the potential to create a massive positive impact by bringing from hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars for swine producers. Join this small group and go to the next level of swine nutrition on this seven week long elite online training in applied swine nutrition and feeding. It's conducted by myself, Dr. Marcia Gonçalves, and my world-class invited speakers. Additionally, you enjoy an exclusive community to exchange ideas. Go now to www.eliteswinenutritionist.com